We're in the summer of Psalms, so we're taking a break from our series in John, and we'll start that back up in September. Ryan started that off last week with Psalm 8, and uh, this week it has been randomly selected for me to do Psalm 17. And all the Psalms are really a study in prayer. And so every summer we want to pause and stop and, and ask, how can we be people of prayer uh, in the everyday comings and goings of life? When we're on the mountaintop, uh, when we're out on the ocean, when we're still going to work in the summer, some of us, uh, how can we see God and, and pray to him and talk to him? That's what prayer is, talking to God, singing to God, praising God, seeing him everywhere. And and so uh, we're going to be looking at a psalm, and, and this psalm this week is actually a psalm uh, of deliverance, uh, praying for deliverance, praying for protection. And, and even in a psalm, uh, which is a, a lament that we'll see today, uh, we are actually praising God. So I'm trying to answer that question, how can a psalm of lament, crying out for God to help you and protect you when you're in danger, how can that even be a song of praise? And so we'll look at all of that, but... Um, I want to start by playing a song for you, but I need to set up the song before we turn it on. And so there's a couple reasons why I want to pr- play that song. Um, the first is that the Psalms, as I said, are a songbook. And so when we think about music even, what were uh, music today, uh, though they're not on par with the songs of God's people uh, what we realize is so many songs are actually shadows of or approximations of the very thing that God told his people to write down, the songs that he told them to write down. So we see that everywhere. Anybody go to the Taylor Swift concert last night? Nobody. Yeah, that's right, because you wouldn't be here. <laughs> if you were, oh, oh, you did go. Okay. Kudos. Extra credit. Okay, so you're here. So um, she's a great songwriter. Uh, approximations of, shadows of, the true songbook. So I want to teach you how to think like that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, this, this song came into my sphere of attention in a, in a peculiar way, and so whenever that happens, I like to ask if, God, do you want me to talk about this? And, and as I've processed it, the more I've said, I think he wants me to talk about it. So let me tell you about the way it came into my sphere, so that you can also be attuned to this as well. So we had an all-staff meeting in the backyard of, uh, of Andrew, Andrew and Sarah Ann Barfoot, and, and, and me and Ty, we carpooled together. And so as we're riding home, for some reason, it could have been the prayer night being close to this artist that we're about to read his song, his house, but for some reason, this artist popped into my mind. And um, I'll just tell you, because you have a piece of paper near you. If you, haven't, if you haven't grabbed that piece of paper, grab that piece of paper. Don't start reading it yet. Uh, there should be enough for all of us. So if you don't have one, ask somebody to pass them forward. Do you guys have paper over here? Okay, so make sure you have one. So uh, Dave Matthews is the, the, the young man I'm referencing. So uh, he's a Seattle guy. Now he lives, he used to live in Wallingford, now he lives in Green Lake. Um, and I said, Tylene, wouldn't it be cool if you and Jordan did like a Dave Matthews, Tim Reynolds kind of uh, two-guitar jam? And I think I was thinking about the prayer night. And she's like, I don't know 
who either of those people are. And I said, this is not okay, you know? And so if you don't know who they are, these are, you know, support local business. This is, uh, Dave Matthews lives in our neighborhood. Okay, so, um, but Tim Reynolds is his buddy who's like a world-renowned guitarist. So uh, it was very apropos that Jordan was actually sitting on a stool today because uh, when we play this recording for you, they would, they do this concert. It's just Dave Matthews and Tim Reynolds. And so we're going to play a re live recording for you from Radio City Music Hall. And, and all the noise they make, you have to understand, is coming from just two guys sitting on stools playing their guitars. It's pretty Im impressive how much noise these two can make. And, and so I said, have you heard that? I said, that's, that's the bar I want to set for you and Jordan. <laughs> She's like, Dave, don't get your hopes up. But Jordan was on a stool today, and he sounded really good. So... So, so I said, but you've got to listen to it. And so I pulled it up on my Spotify, and, and, I, and, I, and I, the first one, or, or the, the live recording, and there's many live recordings of Dave and Tim, and the one I happened to pick was Radio City Music Hall. So I clicked on it. What just happened to be the first song in their set, so the first song on that album, was this song, which you have the lyrics to, called Bartender. So I clicked on it, not thinking anything about the lyrics or the song or, or anything, and we listened to it. And I've probably listened to this song a thousand times. And this song has never hit me the way it hit me when I listened to it that time. It hit me like a ton of bricks. I'll explain a couple reasons why. But the thing I want to say is the world is enchanted with the truth of the gospel. We just have to stop long enough to listen. So if you're not in the habit of, of listening with gospel ears to hear it everywhere, I, I would implore you to begin to listen for the gospel because the world is enchanted with it. This is God's world, and he's, he's, he's enchanted it with the lullaby of the gospel everywhere. And I never heard it. A thousand times I heard the song. I didn't realize just how enchanted this song was. So you'll hear it in a second. The third thing is that this, I think, is a modern song of lament. So we're about to read an, an ancient song of lament, and lament is this, this type of sort of um, hopeful yearning and groaning and suffering, but not hopeless suffering. And so this is a very unique thing that the people of God do. It's this hopeful suffering, groaning, lamenting. It's not despair. It's lament, and it's important that we learn how to do that, and the Psalms help us to do that, and I think modern songs of lament help us to do that. I think it's one of the things why I, my soul is sort of attached to artists like Dave Matthews. And so what we'll see in this psalm is a parallel to the Psalm 17 that we're going to read today, because this song is a song, a, a song of lament and cry for deliverance. It's a cry for deliverance, and you'll see that in Psalm 17. And like I said, I just, I'd never heard it this way before, but because I was in God's Word, studying God's Word, preparing for a sermon, then this very familiar song hit me in a new way. So that's why we want to be in God's Word, because He'll give new meaning to old things. So I want you to listen when you're listening to the song, not just to the lyrics. That's why I, wanted, I want to play it for you. Not just to the lyrics, but to the groaning. This is a, li this is a live 
album. I want you to listen to Dave's groaning because sometimes lament is too deep for words, or at least words alone. This is what it means to lament, to cry out to God, and sometimes words aren't enough. So I think we can learn something from this song. And I want you to picture Psalm 17 being sung and groaned in the same way that Dave Matthews will sing this song, okay? Fourth thing, uh, grab, grab your sheet. If you don't have a sheet, grab, find one. Line number one, I've numbered the lines for you. And yes, that is my handwriting. Top marks in the elementary school. Everyone comments, very nice handwriting. So line number one caught me this week in a new way. Uh, Let me just read it for you. If I go before I'm old, oh, brother of mine, please don't forget me if I go. And if you know my story, you know my sister Kim was killed um, at the age of 26 in a bicycling accident. And so this just hit me this week. Um, I've always felt like my ministry is Kim's ministry. Um, because she's the one that gave me the consider message. And so that just hit me this week. If I go before I'm old, oh brother of mine, please don't forget me if I go. And so um, I was listening to that, and that gave it this extra meaning for me. And then about the third listen through of this song, uh, on my Spotify, my app, it's sort of the title of the album sort of scrolls across. You know what I'm talking about? Because it's like too long. It's like Dave Matthews, Tim Reynolds, live at Radio City Music Hall. And so it can't fit it on one, so it scrolls across. And the third time I was looking at it, and it scrolled across, and it said, recorded April 2007. Kim died March 17th, 2007. And so I, I think it... It's hitting me extra hard because I'm just thinking of this lament, this cry. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of my sister crying this out. This will all make more sense when you hear this, this cry for deliverance, this cry for salvation that can only truly be brought for my sister in one particular way. So I'm going to have a couple more observations after we listen, but let's go ahead, Kurt, play it loud so that we can feel the groan. Go ahead. Follow along with your lyrics.
This is my very, very good friend, my dear friend, Tim Reynolds. Feel the lament, the cry to God for deliverance. And if you're not a student of poetry, let me explain how poetry works. It's called parallelism. Look at verse 6. On bended knees I pray, bartender, please. Look at the end of that verse. On bended knees, Father, please. Think the wine given to Jesus, the power to raise him from the dead was given by who? The Father. Dave knows that. So who is Dave talking about when he says, on bended knee, Father, please? Talking about God. God is the bartender. I love that image of God. My mind goes to an Irish bartender who knows everybody's name, who's ever come to the bar. Good to see you again. What would you like? The regular? The normal? The huge? I've got this other thing. The wine I gave Jesus set him free after three days in the ground. Would you like that? So the bartender is God. And this is a great cry of lament for deliverance from the vines that choke us all out. So let's see the thing I wanted to point out real quick before we get into Psalm 17. Look at verses 7 and 8. Oh, and if this gold should steal my soul away. Guessing Dave wrote this sometime after he became popular and the money started flowing in oh dear mother of mine please redirect me if this gold and he doesn't finish the line this gold does what what does gold do to you bartender you see the vines drinking me That wine came from the vine that strung Judas from the devil's tree, its roots deep, deep in the ground. If you're new to Christianity, there's a dark spot in the story where this amazing Jesus who we've been studying in in the Gospel of John, who's healing people and loving people and feeding people and speaking of salvation and forgiveness of sin, is betrayed by one of his 12 best friends, a disciple named Judas, who for years walked with him, slept next to him, ate with him, drank with him, and even ate and drank at the Last Supper. And for 30 pieces of silver, he sold his rabbi, his teacher, his master, he sold him down the river. 30 pieces of silver. And after Jesus dies, Judas is so stricken with guilt that he hangs himself from a tree. 
Dave knows his Bible. What was, what was the wine that Judas drank? Greed. Sometimes the enemy we need deliverance from is not the enemy out there, but it's the enemy in here. What do you need deliverance from? And as we read Psalm 17 and all the Psalms, that's how God wants us to read it. Not just understanding what was also named David singing about in Psalm 17. What were his enemies? I think they were external. Sometimes we can't resonate because our enemy is internal. Maybe in a city like Seattle, greed is also something we all struggle with. Is it choking you out? Are you so wrapped up in it that you need deliverance? You need redirection. Because most of y'all make way too much money and it's going to kill you if you don't learn how to give it away to the Lord. Whatever that looks like. Father, please. Deliver me. So without further ado, let me read Psalm 17. If you'd open your Bibles, it's going to be right in the middle. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. We'll also put it up on the screen. Psalm 17, a prayer for protection, a plea for deliverance, and I think perhaps even a prelude to the Lord's Prayer. So as you're turning there, it's going to be if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, page 478. I want you to hear how Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. If you don't know this, this is the Lord's Prayer. And so we'll read it. I'll read it together. Feel free to read with me if you want. It goes like this. The disciples ask, how should we pray, Jesus? And perhaps he's thinking of Psalm 17 at the end of his prayer. Let, let, me, let me show you what I mean. Therefore, Jesus said, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored and holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let me read Psalm 17. Picture the, the groans, the laments beyond words of David, the man after God's own heart, the Bible calls him, who became king who had enemies all around him at different times in different ways. And he writes this, Lord, hear a just cause. Pay attention to my cry. Listen to my prayer. From the lips free of deceit, let my vindication come from you. For you see what is right. You have tested my heart. You have examined me at night. You have tried me and found nothing evil. I have determined that my mouth will not sin. Concerning what people do? By the words from your lips. 
I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps are your paths, are on your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love. Savior of all who, who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Protect me as the pupil of your eye, the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently. My deadly enemies who surround me. They are uncaring. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They advance against me. Now they surround me. They are determined to throw me to the ground. They are like a lion eager to tear, like a young lion lurking in ambush. Rise up, Lord. Confront him. Bring him down. With your sword, save me from the wicked. With your hand, Lord, save me from men, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their bellies with what you have in store. Their sons are satisfied, and they leave surplus to their children. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. You hear the urgent appeal for God's salvation. An appeal that has three arguments. Almost almost like David is coming before the throne of God and he's pleading his case. He's saying, God, deliver me, protect me. God, save me. Here are three reasons why. First argument. He's saying, I'm innocent. That's why you should save me. Verses 1 to 5 are claims of innocence. He says, my lips are free from deceit. He says, I wouldn't bring this request to you if I were a liar, if I were deceiving myself. My lips are free from deceit. I've searched my own heart. My heart has been tested by you, and no evil has been found. And then he says, I've avoided the ways of the violent. I haven't stooped to their level. I haven't sacrificed my character to take what is even mine. He says, my feet have not slipped. And so when we hear these claims of innocence, um, it's very important to understand why this is a part of prayer. why, Why would he pray this? I want want to go to Proverbs 24 real quick and read this for you. I'll throw it on the screen. In Proverbs, it says this. If you say, but we didn't know about this, won't he who weighs hearts consider it? Won't he who protects your life know it? Won't he repay a person according to his work? So David knows this truth about God, that God knows everything. And even if we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're innocent, we're the victim, we're, 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 we're being wronged, God knows the truth. 
And so David is almost practicing this act of, God, I've brought this request to you because I've searched my own heart. I've thought about, am I, am I deceiving myself? Am I pretending that I don't know what I've done to cause my own trouble? And I'm coming to you as one who has searched, and I believe, God, that I am innocent. That in this I am righteous, and those who oppress me and seek me and want to destroy me, they are in the wrong. So it's this very interesting thing. Do you do this with the Lord? Do you search your heart and make sure that you're not deceiving yourself? Or saying, oh, I didn't even know that I was the cause of this. Have you searched? A great practice in prayer. Bringing even sort of the accounting that you're doing with your own part in things. Bringing it before the Lord. And I just love um, I just love the the way that the psalmist David, how he he has this integrated righteousness. Did you notice that? So he begins with talking about my thoughts and my motives God, they're pure. So he talks about that in verse 3, he says my heart but, but it can't just be my thoughts and my motives. He says also my lips, my words, and my tongue. The end of verse 3. So he says my mouth is pure. And then he says not just my thoughts and my motives and not just my words, but also my deeds and my actions. So he talks about in verse 5 my steps. And so I think that when we think about innocence and righteousness, we want to make sure we live an integrated life as well. So when we're doing this internal accounting of, am I bringing my plea for deliverance against my enemies? Have I searched my heart? Have I done an accounting of my words? Have I thought about my actions and my deeds? Am I living an integrated life? And David brings his argument to the Lord and says, I believe I'm innocent in this. I believe I'm being wrongfully persecuted. Second argument. I'll jump around a little bit here. Second argument is those who oppose me are not innocent. Okay? Now, who's the ultimate judge? David knows this. It's God. But David's going to make an appeal. He's going to make a case that I'm innocent and they are not innocent. So his second argument goes like this. Verse 10. They are uncaring. Also in verse 10. They, those who speak, they speak arrogantly. There's no humility in their words. They're not doing an accounting of their own self-deception like I am. They're arrogant. Verse 11, they've determined to throw me to the ground. They have violence on their heart. Their way to fix things is destruction. In verse 14, he says, save me from the men of this world, those whose portion is in this life. What's he talking about? 
There's a connection between Psalm 15, 16, and 17, all written by David. It's why they're lumped together. They're probably written in a similar time in David's life. So I want you to jump back to Psalm 16. So if you've got your Bible, it's just the previous psalm. It's on the same page, looking at verse 5. David writes this, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. And then he uses the same word right here. For the men of this world whose portion is in this life. So David's making the claim, God, these men, you have given them a portion. And this life, this place, this experience of you and your common grace is the closest that they will ever get to heaven. Me, O oh God, I'm okay with the suffering and pain. Just deliver me because you are my portion. And this is the closest I'll ever get to hell. I know that. They don't. They're reaping their rewards now. They are men who want nothing to do with you, whereas I'm a man who wants everything to do with you. Do you know people like this? Men whose portion is this life only? Perhaps they have many things, much power, nice cars, but their portion is in this life only. Not me, David says. You are my portion. And we'll see that beautiful crescendo at the end of the psalm as well, Psalm 17. So, he makes this claim that I am innocent and they are not innocent. Now, is praying like this arrogant, self-righteous, right? Did anybody have that feeling when you were reading it? Like, wow, he really thinks highly of himself and his enemies, you know. It's always a little column A, a little column B, David. Let's be honest with yourself. Now, I don't think David is saying he is sinless. I think what he's saying is in whatever this conflict is, he has conducted himself, thoughts, motives, lips, mouth, actions, deeds, in the way of the Lord, whereas his enemies have not. And so is it okay to pray something like this to God, claiming your innocence? Well, the answer is yes. That's absolutely fine because we have the Psalms, and the Psalms are a guide for us to pray. But why? Because see what David does. Does David claim that his righteousness is because of himself? Look at verse 4. What's he say in verse 4? He says this. Concerning what people do, by the words from your lips, God, I have avoided the ways of the violent. God, God, I know it's not me who's just wiser and more moral than anyone else. I've just done what you've said to do. The words from your lips. I've followed your words, God. That's why I'm innocent. That's why I've found the way of righteousness. That's why I haven't become a violent man. Because I trust your words. I follow your words. So it's actually not because of me. It's not my own righteousness, but it's the righteousness that you've put me in. You've redirected my path. And it's all because of you. So of course I can claim innocence but it's not my own, it's because of you. He says the same thing here in verse 5. 
He says, my steps are on your paths. Therefore, my feet have not slipped. Whose paths? Not David's paths. The Lord's paths. Yes, I'm innocent only because I followed your paths. Thank you, God, for giving me the path of righteousness to follow. So it's okay to claim. We don't want to be falsely humble and say, I'm just the worst, the worst, the worst. No, David says, I have actually conducted myself righteously because of your word and your paths, and I've just followed them. That's all I've done. And so I'm innocent. Not perfect, but in this I'm innocent because of you. These people, they're, they're not following your word. They're not following your path. They're not acting in your ways. No one would confuse them in our day and age with looking like Jesus and acting like Jesus and being like Jesus. Me, I'm trying to do that. Not perfectly, but in this I think I'm, I've, I've searched myself. I think I'm good. And so God, deliver me. Save me. Be my vengeance. Man. Some of you know this. It's been a hard, long year for me. Um, I won't go into it, but I've mentioned how we've been negotiating to try to buy this space, to stay in this space. And man, I read the psalm and I was like, I feel this psalm. And I've tried to do this work. God, search me, know me. Are my motives pure? Are my motives clean? Am I doing this for the right reason? Am I acting in a way that's becoming of you? Am I following your word and your path and how I've done this? And I've searched myself. I don't think I've been perfect, but I, as I've done the accounting, I've prayed this prayer to God. God, search me, know me. Am I, and I think he's told me yes. And yet, to, to where we're at now, I, I, I don't know what God's doing. He hasn't answered that prayer. He hasn't given me victory <laughs> in something that I believe is good and righteous. And we don't always know why. But I can tell you that this process is, is very, very life-giving. To ask in your moments of struggle and pain and suffering at times, God, search me, am I in the right? And so I think we can do Steps one and steps two. And we do it to the Lord. Where we know that he'll correct our thinking. He'll correct our believing if we allow him to. So I, I very much, when Ryan, you know, we randomly, if you weren't here last week, we randomly picked this psalm via bingo balls. And we'll do it again this Sunday for next week's psalm. Because every psalm is full of life. So it really doesn't matter which one we pick. And so... And then we randomly got this psalm, and Ryan read it, and he texted me. He goes, looks like God gave you a psalm. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but I don't want to make it about me. So that's all I'll say about that. But this is true to me. This is real to me. I, I, I hope you learn to do this. Because what it's brought me to is the third argument that Jesus makes. And this is the argument that sets you free. Okay, the third argument that he makes is this. Argument three. But God, all I want is you. 
That's all I need. That's all I want. Yes, I think I'm innocent in this. I think I've done it the way that you've said to do it. I think I've treated others as more important than myself. And God, I haven't seen this always on the other side, and I I don't know why God deliver me, have victory for me. But yet, God, at the end of the day, I want you to know all I want is you. So wherever you're going, I want to go. Where are you going? I want to be there. So that's David's third argument he makes before the throne of God. Look at verse 6. I call on you, God. Do you know where your help comes from? Where does your help come from? In this psalm, just 15 verses, David makes 12 references to you or yours, speaking of God. So even though he's claiming his innocence and his enemy's guilt, 12 times he says, you, your, Let me just read them for you in quick succession. Verse 2, he says, Let my vindication come from you. I'm not going to take it into my own hands, God. Let my vindication come from you. He's saying, God, you test me. Yes, I think I've tested myself, but you test me, God. You. Also verse 3, you examine me. Also verse 3, you try me. You judge me, God. You. Verse 4, by the words of your lips. Verse 5, my steps are on your paths. Verse 6, I call on you, God. Verse 7, display the wonder of your faithful love. God, I know of your loving kindness, your enduring love, your unconditional love, your, as the New Testament would call it, agape love, as the Old Testament would call it, your hesed love. I know about that love. I'm, I'm claiming that. I'm pleading your love. Verse 8, hide me in the shadow of your wings. Does that ring a bell for anybody? Do you remember one Jesus of Nazareth weeping and lamenting over Israel, saying, oh, how I long that you would come to me as the chicks of a mother hen come so that you may hide under my wings. David knew this. I want to hide in the shadow of your wings. You are my protection. You are my covering. You alone. Verse 13. Bring him down with your sword. Not my sword. Not my sword. What did Jesus say to Peter? Put your sword away. After after Peter tries to protect Jesus and cuts off the ear of the centurion. Put your swords away, Peter. I've got my own swords. David knows this. Your sword, O Lord. Verse 14. With your hand, your mighty hand, save me. Because the great crescendo of this song, verse 15, let me read it again. But I will see your face in righteousness. When I awake, I will be satisfied with your presence. That's enough. That's enough. If I've got you, God, I am satisfied. It's your presence I want. So whatever you're doing here, why you have these enemies at my gate, David says, for whatever reason, just you don't leave me. 
the end of the day, I want you, even if I've got to go down into the grave so that I could be raised up again on the third day, just like Jesus, on the last day. As long as I'm in your presence, I'm satisfied, I'm content, I'm thrilled to have you. Just don't leave me, Lord. That's what I want. So here's my first question to each of us. If this is what God has preserved for us so that we might learn how to pray, my first question goes like this. When you're praying, when you're crying out to God for deliverance, are you asking for less of someone or something else? Or are you asking for more of God? Let me say it again. When you pray for deliverance, for escape, for salvation, are you praying for less of someone or something that is injuring you, hurting you, inconveniencing you, annoying you? Or are you praying for more of the presence of the Lord? They're not the same thing. Now, inevitably, when you get more of God's presence in your life, it squeezes out the things or the people that we want less of. That's how it works. There's not room for both. So when you invite the presence of God more and more into your life, when you fill your life with his word, when you fill your mouth with the song of his praise, when you fill your steps with the model of Jesus, when you get more of him, it squeezes out the things you want less of. Can, I, can somebody say amen that's had this experience? This is how it works. If we simply want less of something negative, if we want to be cleared or cleansed of something that's bothering us, here's what often happens. Something equally negative, equally as damaging, equally as annoying, fills the void. If all you're doing is cleansing yourself of something, but not filling yourself with something better, inevitably that void gets filled. In the worst sense, this could be an evil spirit. And if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, and all you do is clear one spirit, Jesus makes this very clear, another spirit will just take its place. That's the extreme, and then there's a whole spectrum all the way down to simple things. So if you have been going to the bar of life and asking the bartender for one kind of drink and all you do is go to the bar and you sit there and you say, no, I'm not drinking anymore, how long will you last? How long? Not long. You might be able to white-knuckle it for a bit. But the longer you sit, the longer you wait, you may just end up trading one type of drink for another that's quite the same, with quite the same effects, with quite the same outcome. But you have a choice to make. 
you can fill your life with a new kind of drink. The same kind of drink that God used to raise Jesus from the grave after three days in the ground. You see it? But you have to fill your life with that new drink, the cup of Christ, the cup of blessing. That needs to become your new portion. Otherwise, you'll just fall back into the same old habit or something like the same old habit. That's just the way it is. So why do we need these arguments to God? Like, why can't we just say, save us? And that's a great prayer, too. Sometimes we don't have enough words and we just say, God, deliver us, save us. But why does David go through this whole three-argument case appealing to God? Because I do think it gives us a chance to reflect. Prayer is not just about getting the information to God. God knows what we need. He knows what we want and desire. But the process of praying is actually refining our hearts so that they would attune to God's heart. So as I pray, God, I believe I'm innocent. He'll help me see if I'm not innocent. He'll help me see that I'm wanting something for the wrong reason. Maybe I want the right thing for the wrong reason. Or maybe I want the right thing for the right reason, but in the wrong way. So I've been using this. Some of you have heard me say this. Righteousness is, and righteousness is being like Jesus, being like God. Righteousness is doing the right thing for the right reason in the right way. And if any of those three, Trinitarian by the way, is off, God wants to refine that and he wants us to get in tune. So we might be doing the right thing for the right reason in the wrong way and he wants us through prayer to see how actually there's a better way. And by reciting the argument before our father, who's, he's okay if our argument is a little self-serving. He wants to refine our argument through prayer so that we would help find the right thing for the right reason, in the right way. So that in Father, Son, and Spirit, we might be attuned to the holy and perfect triune God. So this is why we make our arguments before God. God, I believe I'm innocent. I've searched my heart. I've done this. God, I know you've searched me. I'm following your ways. I'm trusting your word. I'm doing this. And my enemies are like this. And and it seems to me that they're wicked and they're arrogant. And it seems to me, God, all I want is you. Help me to see if something's off. This is a song of lament, a prayer of lament. And it attunes our heart to the triune God so that we might walk in the ways of him. Okay. So here's what the last sort of maybe um, implication or application I want to make. So the Psalms are, literally means book of praises. So the Psalms are book of praises to God. Um, God says, I want you to praise me, but you don't know how to do it. So praise me like this. So sometimes it's okay to just read. Now you could like read Psalm 17 to the Lord and put your own situation in there. Or if you just can't even have to just read the psalm out loud as a prayer for deliverance. So he says, I want you to praise me. You don't know how to praise me, so let me show you how to praise me. 
But then you can read a psalm like this and you can say, how is this praising Yahweh? How is this praising God? How, you're just complaining about your situation. How could this be a praise? How could this be a praise? How can my cry for deliverance, my plea for vengeance against my enemies be a praise to God? Are you, are you tracking with me? You, you feel that question? How is this praising God? You know, we, we don't tend to hear those people in our lives who grumble a lot and complain a lot as great praise leaders. <laughs> and if that's you, that's why you're laughing. Okay. You pause to think about that? Here's, my, here's what I think is going on. Um, I'm going to use an illustration to help bring this to life. Some of you have heard this story. When I was maybe eight years old, I, my family were competitive water skiers, so we were down at this man-made water ski lake, and so around the state, they'd dig out all these lakes just for water skiing. And I'm down at this one particular lake called Maytown Lake, down in uh, southern Washington. And I'm out, and I'm hanging out with some of my friend, water skiing friends, one of them who's a bit uh, rambunctious at times, a real risk taker, you could just call him that. And then uh, we're out on the other side of the lake, and we've been told by our parents, whatever you do, don't go to that part of the lake, because that soil is really unsecure, because they dug out the lake, and so it's like, it's like quicksand. So just, you got to stay away from that, you'll sink. And so what did we do as young kids? We said, we got to check this out. <laughs> we got to go test the theory. And so we go over there. It's on the other side of the lake. And this lake's like a long, skinny lake um, because the boat would go down, turn around, come back. So it's just this long, skinny lake. And all the adults are on the other side of the lake. But it's probably like at least a half, like, I don't know, 800-meter sprint from one side of the lake around because it's long and skinny. But you can see to the other side because the other side's maybe only like 100 yards across. And so my uh, rambunctious, risk-taking friend, he, he's a little bit older than me, and so he says, Dave, I think it's best that you be the one to experiment with this soil. And so he says, just take a few steps in there. So I take a few steps in. And sure enough, the parents were right. <laughs> I started to sink. And my older sister Kim's actually with us, and she starts freaking out as little brother Dave is sinking in the sand. So I'm about up to my knees, and they're trying to pull me out. And every time they try to pull me out, what happens in quicksand? I go deeper. So now I'm at my waist. And we all start to do what? Cry out for deliverance. We cry out. We scream at the top of our lungs. Help. Save us. And whose name comes to my mouth? Dad! Dad! Help! And I swear to God, this man would have won the Olympics. He starts sprinting around the lake. And what's funny is he could have gotten a boat and driven across the lake, 100 yards, but he ran 800 meters. <laughs> and he still beat the boat. I've never seen a human being move that fast. And guess what? I was right. My dad was there to save me. 
And he pulled me out of the muck and the mud. And he delivered me. Now, even if he hadn't got there in time, and I was up to my chest, the act of crying out to him in particular does what? Praises who he is. Why? Because I believed with all my heart that he would be there for me. I believed it with every ounce of my being that he is a dad who can save. He is a dad who will do whatever it takes. He is a dad that has supernatural power if I call on his name. And so even in my proclamation, even before my deliverance, my song is a song of praise. What kind of dad must that be? My dad. Now, I really believed in his supernatural power. He always tells the story, speaking of like water skiing, uh, this really good water skier said to me one time when I was around the same age, who's the greatest water skier in the world? And I said, my dad. And this guy said, I beat him several times. I go, my dad. <laughs> okay, so, so I had this irrational belief that he was supernatural. And then when I called for him and his power in my moment of need, that power is proved out. His strength is greater than the mud strength. And that's why this psalm of lament, this honest psalm of, of angst against your enemies, crying out to God for help, genuinely, genuinely seeking the Lord's favor, is implicitly a praise and proclamation to the truth of who God is. Perhaps even better than simply just saying, well, I bet he could, or I've heard he has, or I know I've been taught in Sunday school that God is like this. But when your moment of, of true fear comes, when death is knocking at your door, when you're in the foxhole, who do you cry out to? That actually tells me who you trust more than anything else. That's why it's a song of praise. Who do you trust when there's nowhere else to turn? Who do you think has the power over death itself? Who do you think gives the wine that brought Jesus back from the grave after three days in the ground? That will say something about your God if you cry out to him in your hardest moments. So let's think about it. What is the expectant cry of David in Psalm 17 saying? What is it praising? What is it proclaiming? He's saying, my God is there. He's not just an idea. He's there. My God is listening. He hears my cry. Otherwise, I wouldn't cry it. My God cares about me personally. Not just, just for the nation of Israel, but for me. He cares for me, David's saying. He's saying, my God has the power to deliver. My God desires to deliver. My God sees good from evil. He knows the difference. And God knows the heart of each and every human being. Psalm 17 proclaims and praises all those things about God. So bartender, 
please pour me the drink that you gave Jesus that set him free after three days in the ground. If you've never prayed that prayer, if you've never cried out to God that, God, there's some vines that are wrapped around my neck and I don't think I'm going to be able to escape them without your power. If you've never prayed that prayer, God, give me the power that rose Jesus from the grave. Don't wait. Don't wait another day. We're about to take communion. (laughs) The wine that brings people back to life. The wine that represents Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And Jesus said, for whoever drinks this cup and eats this bread and trusts in me and cries out to me, I will raise them up out of any suffering, even the suffering of death, when I come again and eat with you. If you've never prayed the prayer, Ask God to give you that drink today. And then you can come to the table and drink it with the whole community and say, I too, I'm filling my life with the presence of the Lord from this day forward. I'm not going back and filling it with these other drinks that just lead to death and dead ends, chaos, confusion. I'm filling it with a cup of life. Let's pray.